Your body is an animal, doesn't ask for much. A little music and a soft touch. Why don't you let it out to play? Your heart is in a birdcage, singing in your chest. You wanna shut it up, but give it a rest. You're gonna die one day. The fact is that I've been loved. If I ever really had to put a put my finger on what's made, what's blessed my life to the extent that it's been blessed, it's the fact that I have been loved. And it's one of those things where if you've got it, it builds. You know, like they say, it takes money to make money. Well, I was a I was a little kid who was surrounded by people who loved me, people who thought I was smart and funny and cute and and just showered me and nourished me with love. And I think what happens is you get older, and even though I went through a period in adolescence where I was anything but lovable, um, even then I can remember my father saying to me, you are a little insufferable prick, but I love you, and I'll love you no matter what, no matter how horrible you act to your sister, or no matter what bullshit you pull at school that gets me called in for these meetings, and I'll always love you. If you murder someone, I'll love you. I can remember that. Uh, I can remember the pain in his eyes in some situations when he was saying that, and as much as I pretended I didn't give a shit, I did, and here I am, 52 years of age, and it brings me uh, to the edge of tears just remembering those moments. And the thing is, I I feel uncomfortable admitting this to you, right? Because, uh, you know, it it sounds as if I I think I, I deserved it or something, and the thing, I did deserve it, and so do you, and so does every other little kid who has ever been born, deserves to be loved. No kid doesn't deserve love. Just like no sprouting tree doesn't deserve rain and sunshine, you know? We're born to want those things, and we're designed to need them. And in a world that's functioning properly, we receive them. And then once you've received it at that essential age, then you're going to be okay. It's like colostrum. Um, For those of you who don't know, colostrum is a substance that um, is in a woman's breast milk for the first few days when she's breastfeeding the baby. And it's rich with with, uh, immune-building substances, things that will bacteria that will colonize the baby's intestines. And once those good bacteria are in there that come from the mother, then they take over the intestines. And then when bad bacteria come, as they always do, it's occupied. The The baby's able to defend itself against those bad bacteria, the negative pathogenic bacteria. But if the baby doesn't get the colostrum, Right. If the baby doesn't have a mother, the mother died or the mother doesn't want to breastfeed. And so she gives it cow milk or formula or whatever. The baby doesn't get that original colonizing 
beneficial bacteria from his mother, and that leaves him vulnerable to the bad, the pathogenic bacteria that come in later because that space isn't occupied, right? And I think it's the same thing psychologically. If you're loved as an infant, as a little child, if you're told that you're smart and you're beautiful and you're wonderful, then part of you will always believe that no matter what you're told later in life, no matter who rejects you, no matter what school doesn't let you in, no matter what jobs you get fired from, no matter what marriages fall apart, uh, an essential part of you will always believe that you are lovable, that you are good, you are decent, no matter what mistakes you've made. And that's a beautiful thing when it works. And when it doesn't work, it's incredibly tragic because you can see, look around you at people who were not loved as children or even worse, who were abused as children, abandoned. They spend their entire lives chasing that, trying to find that acceptance. And they never find it. So one of the great gifts I've received in this life was the unconditional love of my parents. And uh, as I said, that's the sort of thing that builds on itself. What's that line? The best way to become a, a millionaire is to be born a multimillionaire, something like that. You know, you're If you're born with that sort of wealth, if you come into that sort of emotional, psychological wealth, it's, you can't squander it, really. Um, Anyway, I was going to move on to New York, but it occurred to me that I really haven't given justice to something that happened at Hobart, where I was uh, an undergrad, I sort of skipped over Hobart a lot, you know, going to Alaska twice. And and I think uh, I talked about living in the tent out behind the art museum and all that. But um, I, I haven't really spoken very much about my relationship with a professor that I had there, um, which is, I think, it's a difficult thing to talk about because I'm talking about someone else's life, too, and I'm invading his privacy Um, but I can't really tell you this story and leave that out because it is one of the most important relationships of my life. And, and, um, the story is just very much incomplete if I don't talk about him and, and our friendship. So, uh, I hope he'll forgive me for this. Um, and I hope that, uh, I, I maintain some sort of discretion as I go through and talk about this, but, um, his name was Rick. He was uh, a professor at the university. He w- had just received tenure when I met him. He was in his early 30s. Um, <clears throat> he was gay, and he was out as a gay professor. Um, but in an interesting way, he was out publicly, but not really out privately, if that makes sense. In other words... He was very open about his sexual orientation on a public level, but not, he hadn't overcome the shame and the, uh, the self-loathing that, that often comes with this. Now, 
you know, this whole thing about parental love, this guy, uh, without getting into his private story too much, he uh, had extremely demanding uh, father figure who was never happy with him. That, you know, typical story that we hear all too often of the father who is never happy. You get an A. Well, why wasn't it an A plus, you know? And uh, this guy, um, Rick, spent his a lot of his energy and his life trying to live up to his father's expectations without understanding that they were asymptotic. They were, you know, the carrot hanging in front of the donkey that the donkey never reaches. And he graduated first in his class from Amherst, PhD from Yale, you know, stellar, spectacular academic career, um, was teaching at Hobart, tenured, fully, you know, guaranteed occupation for life. I met him shortly after tenure, and it was an interesting moment in his life because when a professor gets tenure, that's like you can exhale now. You can relax. You're there. You made it. You're set for life. You're not making a lot of money, but you've got a guaranteed income for life. You can't be fired uh, unless you do something outrageous, but you're pretty, it's a pretty secure situation. So I came along. I was crazy, young, reckless, nuts. And here was a guy who had been holding it all in for a long time. And we, I remember the night we met, uh, I mean, we met actually at a protest at uh, Seneca Army Depot, which is this big military depot in upstate New York in the Finger Lakes. And there was a protest about um, the Minuteman missiles that were being shipped over to Europe aimed at the Soviet Union. And uh, they were being shipped from from that Seneca Army Depot. And I remember walking and we started chatting about poetry and short stories. And I remember seeing that look on his face, which I had seen on other professors' faces over the years of like, oh, this is a smart kid. This is a kid who reads. This is a kid who actually gives a shit about this stuff I'm teaching. And there's a hunger that uh, they get in their eyes. And I recognize it because now I get it. You know, now when I meet someone in their early 20s who's smart and, you know, thinking like that, uh, those of you who listen to Tangentially Speaking, the, the kid I interviewed, the hobo, Aiden, such a smart kid and, and, you know, hanging around with him. I just wanted to help him. I just wanted to give him books and money and clothes and shelter and hot shower. And, you know, I just want to help that kid because he's, he's cool. He's smart. He's thinking. He's interested. He's engaged. Um, and when you're older, it's like putting money in the bank. It's It's like investing in a and something that's going to grow and you feel your own energy and your own time running out and you want to you want to give you want to nourish someone who's still coming up you know rick was in his early 30s so i don't think he was feeling that i think he was just feeling the frustration of being a professor in a school where most of the students didn't give a shit what he was talking about he invited me and a couple of friends to his place one night, and um, we were reading poetry. And 
I remember, you know, we were drinking and probably getting high and whatever. And I remember um, it was my turn to read and I read uh, Crossing Brooklyn Ferry by Walt Whitman. And I really got into it. And if you don't know the poem, check it out. It's it's an amazing poem. Walt Whitman in general is, is fucking amazing. But Crossing Brooklyn Ferry has always been one of my favorite pieces by him because he reaches through the pages of the book and speaks directly to you. You, reading this book. You, holding this book in your hands. He does that several times in different poems, but... In Crossing Brooklyn Ferry, it's very striking. Here's how it begins. Flood tide below me, I see you face to face. Clouds of the west, sun there half an hour high, I see you also face to face. Crowds of men and women attired in the usual costumes, how curious you are to me. On the ferry boats, the hundreds and hundreds that cross, returning home, are more curious to me than you suppose. And you that shall cross from shore to shore years hence are more to me and more in my meditations than you might suppose. Now, this is before there was the Brooklyn Bridge. There were Brooklyn ferries. And that's what he's talking about. And he's talking to us. You that shall cross from shore to shore years hence are more to me and more in my meditations than you might suppose. Anyway, Rick and I bonded over that experience because he loved Whitman as well. And then I became his protege, his best buddy, his friend, and to, in the eyes of many people, his lover. We never had a sexual relationship, at least not in a in a physical sense. But because of what I mentioned earlier, being publicly at peace with his orientation, but privately still very conflicted about it, um, there was, I think, a very important energy in my being um, a straight guy who accepted him. And loved him, came to love him. I mean, he he was my best friend for a couple of years. And um, I think there was something in that that was very valuable to him. There was a, an acceptance and a, a liberation because, you know, here I was saying, hey, let's trip and go to the museum. Let's do this. Let's do that. We're, you know, all I was sort of... Um, uh, a bad influence. You know, I was like uh, the lawyer in the Hunter S. Thompson Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. I was the guy who had the the briefcase of drugs and I was always saying, ah, come on, let's do this. Let's skip, you know. <laughs> I mean, I'm saying to the professor, let's skip school and go, you know, get high somewhere. But anyway, we um, we developed an interesting dynamic where he was just showering me with intellectual nourishment. Um, and what I was giving to him as much as I could was unconditional love. You know, th this is looking back on it 35 years later. Um, at the time, I don't know what the hell I was feeling. At the time, I felt like this guy's really smart. He's fun. We have a blast together. And Yes, there was a feeling of he's sort of in love with me in a way that I 
can't be in love with him because I'm straight. But I was always very honest about that, and and he was honest. And the reason I said we had, we our relationship wasn't sexual, at least in a physical sense, is that in a way it kind of was in the sense that it was extremely intimate. And we shared things with each other that um, I can't remember sharing with anyone else. Um, and... And I think the fact that this is a recurring theme, and this is one of the reasons I felt this was important to talk about, because you'll find that if you you know listen to the rest of these, there there's been a series of men older than me who have decided that I was someone they were going to invest in, that they were going to help. And some of those guys have been gay, some of them have been straight, but it's been a recurring theme of someone 10, 15, 20 years older than me saying, uh, I like this kid, I'm going to help this kid, I'm going to give this kid money, I'm going to give this kid, you know, as much as I can give him in whatever sense it is. And I, I guess Stanley Krippner is the last example of that. <clears throat> and... Um, you know, now now I'm feeling that, as I said, for, for younger people. And, you know, that's a good thing. But um, with Eric, it was, you know, I'm looking back on it and I'm seeing how my unconditional acceptance of him, even when he told me, you know, whatever kinky weird story of this fantasy he had or, you know, he jerked off thinking about this or that or whatever. The fact that it didn't bother me and that I was a straight man, I think, was validating for him. So, you know, he was getting something uh, as well. But anyway, I think everybody, most people on on campus thought that we were sleeping together because we were together all the time. And, you know, we used to f- drive down to New York together. He went up to Alaska one year. We did a lot of things together. And um, and it was interesting uh, for me to know that everybody was thinking that I was sleeping with him and to not give a shit. And I think that also was of some value, value to him because he saw, you know, here's this straight guy and everyone thinks he's gay because he's hanging out with me all the time and he doesn't give a shit. Therefore, maybe it's not that, maybe I shouldn't be ashamed about being gay, right? And so I felt that I was, you know, I I don't know. I, I just felt like I was protecting him somehow. But on the other side, he was giving me so much. He was playing, you know, his favorite symphonies for me and explaining where where they came from and why they were constructed this way and what was happening in the history and the economics and everything when this was written and why Beethoven was, you know, structurally so different from Chopin and so different from Mozart and because of the, the different economic situations. And, you know, we'd go to Manhattan and he'd point out all these buildings and tell me about the architect and what was happening when it was built. The dude is so knowledgeable. And I can't begin to tell you about the different literature that he turned me on to. And I remember one time we were sitting in his, we were in his kitchen. We were going to drop acid and walk around in the snow. We had our coats on and gloves and everything. And we were headed toward the door. 
and we were already starting to get high and there was he always had books everywhere and there was a copy of uh, Heart of Darkness on the kitchen table and I I picked it up and I said, oh, I just read this recently. There's this amazing passage. Let me read this. And I read a few, you know, we used to read to each other, which, by the way, is a wonderful thing. If any of you are studying literature, read that shit out loud. You got to have a voice, not the voice in your head. You got to hear a voice in the room. That brings it to life. Anyway, so I started reading I read a paragraph, and he was like, oh, yeah, that's amazing. Oh, let me read this one to you. Oh, yeah. And the next thing you know, we're sitting there, and we're swapping back and forth reading pages. We read the whole fucking book sitting there with our gloves and our hats on. <laughs> it's not a long book, but still. Anyway, so he gave me a great passion for learning. He gave me an amazing, essentially an amazing private education. Uh, sort of like the Oxford system with the, the tutors where, you know, you have someone who's looking after your progression and tells you what to read and then discusses it with you and then guides you as you go along. Well, that's what I was getting from this guy. And then through him, some other people uh, who were also professors at the school um, took a special interest in me and, and put a lot of energy and, and effort into helping me along my way. And I felt that I gave that a short short shrift earlier when I was, you know, focusing more on the adventures in Alaska and my repudiation of of that. Um, because I did ultimately decide that I don't want to have this guy's life. I don't want to join him. And, and the whole thing was that I was supposed to join him. I was supposed to go off to Oxford and then come back and he'd get me a teaching gig or I'd get a gig somewhere else. And by the time I was 30, I'd have tenure and, you know, we'd be together in that academic realm. And my experiences in Alaska made me see that, no, <clears throat> that's not the life I want. But I don't want to leave. I didn't want to leave the impression that that would that it was shitty, that he was ungenerous to me in any way, because it was so much the opposite. And uh, and it makes I guess it makes sense of some things that happened down the road. Um, in the next episode, I'll talk about Manhattan and the crazy shit that happened to me when I went there uh, right after Alaska and another older man who decided to, um, <clears throat> to you know, nourish me and, and take me under his wing. Um, but it's important to understand that uh, – down the road after Manhattan, when I when I take off and go to Asia, Rick completely broke contact with me, and uh, really broke my heart in a way because I couldn't understand why he wouldn't respond to my letters. I wrote the guy letters for you know six or seven years, and he never answered, and uh, it really bothered me, uh, really hurt me deeply, and. When I look back on it now, uh, I've had some contact with him since then, and he um, he thanked me for for helping him come to peace with who he was. But he said that he just couldn't be in contact with me um, <clears throat> for those years, which is something I still don't really accept. I I don't think he's being honest with himself about what was going on, but <clears throat> I guess I'm. You know, I have to let that go. But 
it was a very intense friendship and marked me in many ways. I'll never listen to a Mahler symphony. I'll never watch a Bunuel film and I'll never read Walt Whitman without thinking about him. So there you go. Next episode, I'll talk about where I went after that second year in Alaska. I, um, you know, was trying to decide where to go. I, I had made the decision that I was going to spend the next 10 years adventuring and doing weird things and, you know, floating around the world. And <clears throat> there was a woman that I loved and was very attracted to, and she was living in Manhattan. And I thought, well, wouldn't it be interesting to go to Manhattan and get a job in a restaurant or drive in a taxi or something and live in a big city? Because I'd never lived in a big city. And that would be an interesting move after two summers in Alaska. Go there, just get some bullshit job, whatever, and experience living in Manhattan for a while and uh, check things out with this woman and see if that's for real or not. So that was my plan. <clears throat> and I went to Manhattan and I did get a job in a restaurant. And a couple weeks after I got that job, some pretty intense shit started happening. So that's where we'll go next week. Uh, hopefully next week, but certainly next episode. Thanks, and sorry for uh, the long delay in, in this series. Those of you who paid for it deserve more content than I've been putting out. So thank you for, for your patience, and I'll pump these things out a lot more frequently now. Thanks. Bye. He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you wanna say You're gonna die one day For example, I could kiss you Just because I want to What's the difference if you turn away? I'm gonna die one day Why do you waste your time Thinking about your reputation Trying to meet an expectation Wondering what they're gonna say When everyone you've ever known Is headed for a headstone I don't wanna give the end away But we're gonna die one day Your body is an animal Doesn't ask for much A little music and a soft touch why don't you let it out to play? Your heart is in a birdcage Singing in your chest You wanna shut it up but give it a rest You're gonna die one day Why do we waste our time Thinking about a reputation Running from a confrontation Wondering what we ought to say
And if we must go down, we'll go singing to the smoke alarms. We'll dance into the ground.